0: to A Virtual View. Today I'm joined by Dr. Chris Gallagher, the CEO of Access Telecare. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Hey Danielle, thanks for inviting me.
0: Yeah, for sure. So could you tell us a little about yourself?
1: Sure, as you introduced me, CEO of Access Telecare, I'm a cardiologist by training, originally from Texas, and did all of my training at medical institutions in Texas. So I uh, did my medical school training, at Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas, which really has been, and we'll probably talk about this later, but has been a pioneer in telemedicine. So that's my first exposure to telemedicine took place. And then went on to do all my postgraduate training at UT Southwestern in Dallas. That led me to rural care in East Texas. And that's where I began my start with telemedicine.
0: Very cool. We've worked with Texas Tech before in the TRC program, so we're very familiar. They're doing some really exciting work in the telehealth space.
1: Definitely. Definitely pioneers. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So uh, you are a telehealth uh, aficionado. You've been in this space for a while.
1: Like so many good entrepreneurial stories. it's uh, It was by accident. And, um, you know, it's one, one didn't train in the early two thousands thinking that telemedicine would be an integral part of a career in medicine. Mm -hmm. And like so many of my colleagues was, was really head down for, for nearly 20 years, focusing on kind of what's the next training program I'm going to do. And so you go went from med school to internship, to residency, to fellowship, to another fellowship, a brief stint as a attending physician. And, and when I finally got out to practice. Found myself really pulled towards uh, where my original training roots were, which is rural medicine, Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: was the CMO of a 96-bed facility in rural East Texas. And like so many hospitals in in those care settings, was challenged with recruitment, had great facilities, had incredibly dedicated staff who wanted to do more, but were uh, completely hamstrung by the just inability to retain or recruit specific specialties that would help them keep care local. And so really pulled back on my experience of telemedicine and said, you know, why don't we try it? We have really nothing to lose. This was 2013, and we unknowingly built Texas's first 100% virtual ICU. And we're really proud of that. And And from that came a, a whole wealth of experiences over the, the past decade that really have, have founded kind of my belief in telemedicine and, and helped set in course the course of our, our vision for telemedicine.
0: Yeah, it's always really interesting to talk to people who have been in the telehealth space since before the, air quotes, new normal, since before the COVID-19 pandemic, because they have such a a different perspective on how that whole process has, has come into the prevalence that it has today.
1: You know, I think we probably have learned over time that so much of what we do in healthcare is is tradition, and we certainly are, for very good reason, a, a risk and change averse uh, industry. You know, to bring new drugs to market, it's in some cases a decade worth of research and right. testing to make sure it's safe, and to implement tried and tr- you know changes to tried and true methods. You know, we're always concerned that there could be ripple effects or unintended consequences that, that could impact a patient's life. And so so I think in in that regard, um, we felt really strongly in our organization, and I did personally, that telemedicine would expand over time to become part of the fabric of healthcare. Obviously mm-hmm. what took place in 2020 with the pandemic was was really a, a catalyst of that. But but certainly as you think about those who have, have been practicing in the space and have been part of kind of its growth and evangelizing, you know, what can be possible and and what is possible through telemedicine. It's certainly been rewarding to watch it grow and to watch its role within healthcare expand. You know, our niche is is inside the four walls of the hospital with acute care telemedicine. But to see the industry expand and provide new touch points for patients to improve care is um, it's really been a I'd say a rewarding career.
0: Yeah, for sure. The seeing the fulfillment of that promise that so many telehealth advocates have believed in for a really long time.
1: Yeah, it was it was kind of interesting. We I had the opportunity to speak at the American Telemedicine Association last year, and it was it was a fun experience. But one of my talking points was that we're we're like in the early days of kind of defining what we can do with telemedicine. And as I mm-hmm. as I finished uh, speaking, someone in the audience was speaking to a coworker of mine and said. ATA is celebrating its 30 year anniversary, like, how could they just be in their infancy? And I think it, it has been a really long fuse on when you think about like, how long people have been working on this to finally get traction and to, and to see it become part of, of the fabric of healthcare is, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely been an interesting journey.
0: Oh, for sure. So tell me a little bit about Access Telecare.
1: Access Telecare is the nation's largest provider of telemedicine inside of hospitals, so acute care telemedicine. We serve just at one in five U.S. hospitals with telemedicine clinical programs, telemedicine technology. Um, We have over 2,000 programs that we deliver to our client hospitals, and we're comprised of uh, 800 providers. That's physicians, nurse practitioners, and PAs. Um, practicing across our core specialties of behavioral health, uh, neurology, pulmonary critical care, hospitalist medicine, maternal fetal medicine, cardiology, infectious disease, and nephrology. And so those are really, I would say, core specialties to inpatient care. Um, Those are the most common, you know, the specialties to care for the most common um, diagnoses that come into the emergency department or are cared for inside of hospitals. And so those are the the specialties we provide to hospitalized patients.
0: Right. So I talk to a lot of people in my role as a telehealth technical assistance provider who think of telehealth only as I'm going to sit down and I'm going to go to the doctor on the computer <laughs> yes. um, for my like my personal care. So can you explain a little bit about how telehealth within a hospital, how that differs from the sort of bog standard telehealth p- people might think of?
1: Absolutely. So really our role in, in, inside of a, of a hospital in terms of the, the programs we participate in is to be the, the missing specialist and the missing specialist for insert kind of diagnosis here. And so if you think of pulmonary critical care, so there are many hospitals that, that don't have a pulmonary critical care doctor, but have an ICU. And, and oftentimes they may have an ICU, but the vast majority of patients that present to the hospital that need critical care Um, are stabilized in the ER and transferred either on an ambulance or helicopter. Um, Mm -hmm. The hospital doesn't lack nursing capability, they don't lack the facilities or the tools to take care of the patient, they really just lack the specialists to make the diagnoses, to manage the patient, to to provide the care. And so that's what we are able to bring through telemedicine is that, that missing specialist, which really is the linchpin in whether a patient stays in their community for care. Or, uh, or they're transferred. And, and so you can, you can think of the, the role that we play is that of the specialist inside of a hospital that's working with the attending physician who's caring for the patient, providing guidance and expertise um, for any of those specialties that I, I mentioned earlier.
0: And when we think about staff shortages, is this something that we've seen as kind of a stopgap for those staff sor- shortages or even a solution?
1: I think in many cases, it's become the solution. I think when we started in telemedicine, a really, a really busy experience for a telemedicine physician um, was to have four encounters in a day. And, um, <laughs> and so uh, technology's gotten a lot better. Um, we've gotten a lot more efficient. And, and we're now having volumes of encounters um, that are on par with what any of us would have done in person. And, um, and so because we're able to provide that level of um, reliability and, and handle that workload, it's really become a solution for many hospitals that, that see telemedicine as we we, we, we hospital are unable or community unable to recruit. Um, we can't afford to, to recruit or we just, we just can't have someone come and interview or our existing physicians are pulling out of the hospital to focus on their outpatient care so that they can manage their clinics. We've we've definitely seen it more and more move towards long-term or permanent solution rather than just a stopgap while we're trying to recruit someone for an in-person role.
0: Right. And you mentioned that you've seen a lot of this in rural areas where we've seen these staffing shortages uh, at their most intense, particularly for these specialty providers, unfortunately. So when we're talking about these rural areas, is this? Do you think this is the most realistic solution for getting people in these rural communities connected with this specialty care?
1: I think certainly it's a it's a viable solution that that works long term for for rural communities. I think mm-hmm. we've we've certainly seen it it resonate and um, and help communities provide ex- expansion of services, enhance capabilities. So certainly it's. It's been, a, it's been a great solution. I think what has surprised us is we are now beginning to see the things that prior to the pandemic were a great fit really only in rural spaces, but now to see them in urban markets as well. Um, our organization oh, really? has been um, disproportionately um, busier in, in rural. If you think about kind of the urban rural mix of 80% of facilities or patients living uh, urban, 20% being rural organizations always been greater than 50% rural. And this past 12 months, we've had more uh, programs start in urban areas that would fall within urban areas than in rural, which for us has really been a surprise. And I think it, it speaks to the adoption of telemedicine and just the increased role it's playing as kind of the earlier question around, is it a solution? I think we're seeing more and more decided is a solution to address staffing shortages and uh, expand capabilities.
0: That's interesting that you talk about the expansion in urban spaces. So what sort of specialties are you seeing like a higher uptick in urban spaces?
1: Continuing to see our kind of our our usual uh, specialties. Um, So across the board, we're seeing behavioral health, which (laughs) which certainly has been number one for us for the past several years. Neurology continues to be uh, a primary specialty of interest and then our infectious disease uh, programs and hospitals, critical care programs. So, you know, continue to see those uh, increased adoption uh, and and more and more demand for those services across all of our our care settings.
0: Right. That's extremely interesting because we've been around uh, quite a while as well as the, the telehealth resource center program. And we did start out Exclusively focused on those rural areas, but as time has gone on, we've seen an increased interest in uh, urban areas as well. So, what you talk about sort of <laughs> reflects what we've seen too.
1: Yeah, it's been it's been interesting, and there's a, there's a multitude of, of kind of potential drivers when we talk to hospitals about why they're entertaining telemedicine. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it you know it continuously is we just don't have a physician to come to the hospital whether that physician retired whether you know that group has has moved to focusing on outpatient it, it definitely has been has been surprising to us uh, to say the least.
0: yeah it's a trend where well I hope it continues because I think greater access is is a good thing uh, in urban and rural communities um, Obviously it's unfortunate that we're not seeing care uh, and these specialists within like, uh, the physical spaces where these people are located.
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think, um, it's, it's becoming a paradigm shift for sure to, you know, if one were to go to a hospital, you, you would think oh, my doctor's going to be there and my mm-hmm. doctor's going to take care of me. And if I need a specialist, they're going to walk into the room and talk to me. And, um, and we're seeing, uh, you know, the evolution of technology facilitating, um, you know, changes in, in usual or customary care patterns. And I think mm-hmm. um, when you think about healthcare and you think about quality, you know, there have been kind of everything we've done has been built around the in-person team members and mm-hmm. um, the way hospitals work have been built around the in-person team members. So to to bring in a virtual team member, it is definitely a change in how you think. Hospitals aren't built for virtual team members. We're, we're kind of beginning to think and incorporate virtual team members into um, the design, build structure, how we think about programs and care delivery. Um, but I also think like there's a there's a piece for quality as well in terms of how do we think about qual- quality of care delivered by virtual team members, which is really not um, outside of maybe a time to screen in a uh, acute stroke encounter. There's not a whole lot of guidance out there on what, what does excellent look like. And, mm-hmm. and just given our footprint, we really think it's a we're an amazing opportunity to begin to, to publish and write about, you know, the outcome changes that virtual care can bring uh, to enhance care of the patient when hospitals have hit their limits in terms of what they can do with their in-person staff. That doesn't mean that's the ceiling of what we can do for a patient, you know, to your point about expanding access, improving capabilities or something that we can do. And that, that actually can translate into improved outcomes as well. So, it's not, I think, something that is um, has written about or it's spoken of as a maybe a hope, but to have like concrete, like here's how we've done this over the past few years, is something that we're really excited to begin to share.
0: Yeah, because despite the fact that you mentioned that telehealth has been around for a lot longer than most people think, there is unfortunately a lack of data out there and a lack of uh, written processes. Yeah. And hopefully the sort of tidal wave of usage that we've seen in the past couple of years here is going to lead to that that data and that um, sort of wealth of information for us to draw from. Eventually, it, it is going to take a while with that data lag, which is always unfortunate.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about building sustainable programs, because this is something that I find is a big difference between people who have been in this space for a while and people who were new to this space during the pandemic. The concern there wasn't building a sustainable program, it was how do we see patients at all. So now we're moving into the air quotes new normal phase, and there's been an increased interest in sustainability and how to build a sustainable telehealth program. So, what's what's your perspective on ensuring that a telehealth program can be sustainable?
1: Um, I think it's a, it's a it's a great topic. Sustainability has been part of our vision statement for a number of years, and and for us, what that means is that. A a telemedicine program uh, is able to carry on indefinitely, meaning that it, it doesn't it isn't viewed as a cost or an expense to a hospital. It's it's viewed as something that provides value to the hospital, helps retain patients, and so um, it's a driver of revenue. And so we think that's really important as we think about sustainability. We're working with hospitals which have at times um, volatile financial pictures based upon what's going on in the broader healthcare market. And, and so we want to be seen, we need to be seen as a telemedicine service as something that um, enhances the hospital's ability to survive that volatility. So I think first and foremost is making sure that it's financially sustainable. And then, and then second is around just the care delivery model. Um, mm-hmm. We aren't there to deliver the care with our own hands. And that means we're dependent upon resources, team members in the hospital Um, to assist us. And so telemedicine truly is a, is a team-based approach. We're, you know, we, we need a, we need a staff member there to be our hands, uh, to move the cart, uh, to help us with an exam, um, to help prep a patient. And, and so there's, it's always collaborative. And I think that is something that when you're having maybe one or two encounters in an ICU, like that's not a hindrance, but when you think about rounding on every patient in an ICU or rounding on a neuro service of 20 plus patients. Um, the logistics around how do you manage that throughout the day when the provider isn't there and they're they're being passed around. Like it, it can be very taxing on a hospital logistically. And so I think the logistics and just the care delivery is a third, is the second. And then thirdly is relationships in the hospital with the with the medical staff to be sustainable. So working as part of a medical staff, whether you're virtual or in person, um, it's people working with people. Mm -hmm. And you've got to maintain those relationships and maintain connectivity with the medical staff and and be an active part of the medical staff so that you're viewed as a partner uh, and really appear to those who are working inside of the hospital um, day in and day out. And so it's assuring that we have those touch points that have active medical directorships. We're part of um, executive committees when it makes sense from a telemedicine standpoint. So I'd say those are kind of the three prongs we'll we'll think about is um, around sustainability, and it has to do with it has to be financially viable and stand on its own two feet. It has to be logistically possible to deliver day in day out with its care care models, and then and then lastly, an active part of the medical staff. And I think kind of what wraps that all together is there has to be enhancement of quality uh, and delivery of quality throughout kind of all of those areas it has to be quality encounter. And all of those are centered around uh, excellence in patient care.
0: I do like that you mention interpersonal connections, because I think that's something that does get overlooked when we're instituting telehealth programs. There is a different relationship if you have a lack of that face-to-face and the lack of that sort of in-person communication among staff members. And I think that's a really important piece to consider when you're looking at how do we institute this? How do we make this happen and happen in a way where everyone is happy?
1: Completely agree. We learned very hard lessons <laughs> over time of how important it is <laughs> to build those relationships and things you take for granted when you become part of a, a medical staff. If you're going to go to medical staff meetings. You're going to bump into your colleagues in the hallway. You're get, you'd are be charting you know, at the nurse's station you may go to holiday parties like all of these normal things of of working with your your peers you you really don't have that when you're a telemedicine provider Um, you have to be very intentional about how you work and what you do that not only with building relationships but when you're you're actually having your telemedicine encounters you have to be very intentional um because you're not there to build a, a traditional provider to patient relationship where you can walk in the room, you can shake hands, you can make eye contact, you can sit next to their bed. It You, you, you lack all that. So you have, to, you have to develop ways, process-driven ways, 800 providers working in 2,200 programs. The only way to do that is, is a process-driven way about how do we have encounters? How do we have our telemedicine set up? What's our technology, microphones, all that stuff. All those little things become really important when we're, uh, we're delivering care Via technology at scale,
0: and I think that goes along with what you said about intentionality. Because a lot of times when you're instituting a telehealth program, it's easy to assume that these things will work themselves out, but they won't unless there's intention and planning assigned to every single step.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, and um, I think part of part of being in telemedicine for the we were talking earlier about just the duration and having been there for many many years before 2020. And lots of uh, scraped elbows and bumped knees along the way to kind of like say, okay, this is the right way. This is the wrong way. Um, how should we do this so that we, we know we're going to have the best outcomes? And um, we found one is, is around how we implement a program and kind of all the things we do before we actually go live to, to build those relationships and make sure we're aligned on what our goals are and and then, you know, first impressions They really matter. So making sure that the launch, the implementation goes extremely smooth because you're doing something that maybe a hospital hasn't done before. Maybe they haven't had a tele-ID program or a telecardiology program before. And so this is their first experience and you only get one chance to leave a good impression. So that's always our goal.
0: Right. Exactly. And we've seen a lot of the times that things work out best if you have a lot of buy-in, not just from like your higher ups, but from your clinical staff. And I do wonder, you you are a medical doctor. So from your perspective, why is it important for someone like you to be uh, the CEO of, of this, this organization, not somebody who maybe just has the business hat on?
1: Um, you know, I'm a I might be a little biased. I'm definitely a fan of, <laughs> of clinical leaders uh, leading clinical clinical organizations for sure. I think specifically when it comes to telemedicine, we you know are still in, in relatively early days and being able to to lead an organization and having practiced telemedicine for thousands and thousands of hours and thousands and thousands of encounters. It leaves you with a, a pretty deep understanding of the challenges or barriers one would face in care, but also a perspective on kind of what we should expect and what's normal, what's, what's not normal in telemedicine. Mm-hmm. And that's very different from what one would have in terms of experience from, from in-person care. And then I think we're still trying to push and innovate telemedicine as a, as a part of healthcare and continuously kind of evolving where we, you know, the type of care setting, the type of providers that we have. We have a rapid expansion of nurse practitioners within our group. It's probably the fastest growing clinical segment in our organization right now. And then also you know, little niches within specialties and all our, our neurology practice is, is probably one of the nation's oldest tele-neuro practices. It's um, 20th anniversary comes up next year. So part of our practice comes from specialists on call, which in 2004 launched under the name brain saving technologies, which I find is just like the best name. <laughs> Oh, so good. Um, good. And so so 2004 is is when they launched. So we're we're about to celebrate our 20th anniversary in telenurology.
0: Congratulations. And really that
1: group was we're super excited and looking forward to yeah. that celebration. It's a, it's an awesome milestone. And and that started with really acute stroke neurology focused on um do we give tpa or not? Is this a stroke or not? And really it's answering two questions. Um is this a stroke and if it is, should we give tpa? And now our tele neuro practice is seeing um, one hundred and fifty thousand encounters a year inside of a hospital. Um, they're doing ac- acute stroke, emergent neurology, neurohospitalist programs, uh, epilepsy programs with virtual EMUs, and and now burgeoning neurosurgery practice. And and so as oh, you wow. think about like kind of the expand that speaks to really in our view is what's happened over twenty years. A lot of that's been catalyzed in the last five. And then we think about the other specialties and, and what we, where we see expansion. Is, it's really, a, I think, a really interesting future for, for telemedicine, and, and we're, we're excited about the role.
0: Very cool. So as we speak about the future of telemedicine, I would be remiss not to bring up the hot button issue of the day that everyone loves to talk about. So artificial intelligence and machine learning, is that something you see becoming involved in uh, what you do at all?
1: I hope so. I I think at at this point the and not just telemedicine, but I, w- I would say medicine. Sometimes the the most important and most impactful thing we can do is to, to actually be a, a human with patients, mm-hmm. right? Is to show empathy and compassion, to listen and to be thoughtful and just kind of how we, we work with the patients. It's really important to the work that we do. We're working in hospitals with the, the sickest patients, right? They're in the emergency department, they're in the ICU. And this might be the scariest moment of their lives and they may be with their family members or they may be completely alone. And so being like very um, relatable and empathetic is, is paramount to, to patients developing trust and having confidence that what you're telling them is the right thing to do. And so if we as, we as providers, we as physicians, nurse practitioners, et cetera, can, can focus on that human connection to make people feel cared for and we can use artificial intelligence to augment in like what's best practice, you know, help me with a diagnosis, you know, help me document this note, kind of make the order entry, you know, much easier for me. Then I think it allows us to, to focus on what I think we forever will be very special at, which is being human and relating mm-hmm. to other humans. I hope we can as a workforce really focus on that. And then use kind of AI to augment our ability to, to process information, to make our notes our documentation that can make us more efficient and, and focus on, I think, what people want to hear, which is uh, a caring, compassionate physician who's invested in their care, paying attention to their needs. And is going to help them get better and give them the best advice possible on what they do to, to walk out of the hospital.
0: I think that's a really valuable perspective because I do think people get so excited about the shiny new technology, as it were, <laughs> that they forget that the most important part of healthcare is the care part. It, it
1: truly is so important. And I think you know one of the things that we all learn as medical students is how important your bedside manner is. And I think a lot of us, we get so busy that it's easy to cut corners on that because you, you got 20 patients to see and you got just a few hours to do it. And all this, all this, all these other kind of competing priorities that are placed upon you. The simple act of sitting down in a room can make a patient feel like they were listened to, even though if you didn't spend more time with them, you didn't really do anything different. That kind of that kind of stuff really, really does matter. And I, I'm old enough to remember the days of paper charts versus when we all converted to electronic medical records. And I, I remember the clinic I was in when I when we converted. I used to have a paper chart. I could put it on the on the table in between or right on the the, the patient's uh, near the patient's foot and we could sit eye to eye and talk to each other. And I'd sit there and I'd handwrite my notes and we'd have like a normal conversation. And when they set up our EMR, the desk was was facing away from the patient. So when I sat in the desk, my back was to the patient. So the patient could see right. my screen. I could see my screen, but the patient would look at the back of my head. And it, it was very like, I don't think anyone intended it, but it was just that's where the desk fit and we needed to put a right. computer in there. Right. And, but it, those little subtle things really, they really impact the, the care experience, and I think that's a. We talked about sustainability earlier, but care experience is a big part, and it's part of our vision statement. Is to make sure that we're we're enhancing the experience because we deeply believe that patients that have a better experience, they're just going to get better. And it's this intangible right. that that we can't measure in terms of which patient's going to get better, which not. But those who have more confidence in their care, they're gonna they're gonna heal.
0: That's interesting that you mentioned earlier about looking at an EMR, looking at a screen versus having a conversation with your patient. Because uh, I just thought back to the most recent time I was at the doctor and the entire time they were looking, at, they were glancing at me, but their focus was mostly on the screen so they could take notes and fill out the EMR. And while obviously that sort of technology is can be extremely beneficial, there is sometimes the lack of that that connection between folks, and if, if telehealth and technology can help to augment that or make that easier, um, I think that's great.
1: Technology is full of unintended consequences to patients and providers, for sure. And um, I think it's just trying to be as as thoughtful as possible as we're as we're implementing to understand how it will will impact that dynamic. And yeah, if, and if if AI can help us, then we're all for it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good perspective to have. So where do you see uh, sort of the future of, of in-hospital telehealth? Where do you see that going?
1: So I think we'll continue to see an evolution to hybrid models of in-person mixed with telemedicine across most specialties. Timely care changes outcomes. So the more timely, we can get to bedside. And so if, if we can do that in person, we'll do that in person. If that means virtual care is part of the care model, then, then we should em- employ virtual care. We're seeing programs where part of the team is in person and part of the team is hybrid, and sometimes that's because there's not enough specialists to go around, and sometimes because that's the most cost-effective, sustainable model. Is that during kind of we're going to have people there all the time, and then during peak times to make sure that we have timely care, we're going to augment with, with virtual care members who can maybe cover multiple facilities, not just just the one. So I think we'll we'll see this hybridization of of care models throughout the hospital. And then I I think what will also be interesting is to see what happens with the technology. And so we're beginning to see hospitals fully wired for for telemedicine, where there's cameras in every room and screens in every room. And there's now an interplay between tele-nursing, tele-sitting, and telemedicine or or the providers, potentially all coming through, through one portal. And now we're also beginning to see uh, mobile devices being used in hospitals as well. So, you know, whether it be a tablet or a, um, a phone, providers having encounters on, on that in the hospital as well. So, you know, there will be this hybridization of in-person and, and, and tele to whatever is the best fit for the patient and best fit for that, that hospital and that program. And then um, I think we'll have ubiquitous technology, in ways to connect in hospitals that I would say dose dependent, like what, what do you need? Right? So, Mm -hmm. um, I think one thing that's been interesting about a multi-specialty group is what do we need to have an appropriate, um, encounter? And an encounter is obviously audio visual to see each other and hear each other, but then also to do an exam and the exam to a psychiatrist is very different than the exam of a pulmonary critical care doctor or a cardiologist, right? They they're doing they're focusing on different parts of the exam. And when you say, "Hey, we need a stethoscope," the behavioral health team looks at us and says we, we don't need a stethoscope. Like that's that's the internal medicine team. But our critical care and cardiology uh, team, that's an essential piece to their their evaluation is being able to listen to the the heart and the lungs. And and so I think, you know, we'll we'll use different pieces of technology in hospitals based upon kind of what the program requires and what kind of the patients need the best evaluations to, to make the right diagnosis and um, put together the right care plans for them going forward. So that that's definitely influx right now as to, as yeah. hospital systems think about what they're going to install and what's the most economical best use of things. And so um, we, you know, always, that's always a, a topic of conversation when we're starting a new program is, is what do we need? And then how else could this be used?
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on today and chatting with me. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Danielle. Appreciate the opportunity.
0: Yeah, thank you so much.
2: Thank you for listening to A Virtual View. You can find more information about today's episode in the show notes below. If you would like to support our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Do you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss? If so, contact us at info at or through the form found in the show notes. Also, we'd like to give a special thanks to our editor, Tristan Yoder. Finally, a special thanks to the Health Resources and Service Administration, also known as HRSA, Our podcast series, A Virtual View, is sponsored in part by HRSA's Telehealth Resource Center program, which is under HRSA's Office of the Administrator and the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth. The content and conclusions of this podcast are those of the UMTRC and should not be construed as the official policy of, or the position of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thanks for listening and have a great day.